In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The top Georgia political stories of 2021. Chaos, conflict, and new campaigns. If I give this up, they're going to have to run after at least this capital we can defend. we got to hold what we have. They're coming to cancel everything from sports to how you make a living. My name is Herschel Walker, and I'm running for the United States Senate. This is Politically Georgia, and I'm your host, Greg Bluestein. I'm here today with an all-star panel of guests to talk about the year in politics. My two fellow AJC political insiders, Tia Mitchell and Patricia Murphy, are joining me today, along with Editor-in-Chief Kevin Riley. Thank you guys for joining us today to talk about the year that was in Georgia politics. Hi, Greg. (laughs) Hey, Greg. Greg, thanks for having me. Wow. I'm I'm honored to be a a part of this austere panel. Well, we're, we're happy to have you. 2021 started with a monumental political shift in the state of Georgia. Georgia, thank you so much for the confidence that you've placed in me. I am honored, honored by your support. We prove that with hope, hard work, and the people by our side, anything is possible. For the first time in decades, both Georgia senators are Democrat. After John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock unseated David Perdue and Kelly Leffler, on January 5th. And this wasn't just a state election, of course. This decided control of the U.S. Senate, and it flipped the chamber control to Democrats. Patricia, uh, this was nationally watched for a reason because it allowed President Joe Biden to dramatically expand his ambitions in Washington. Yes, there was a scenario that we started talking about several months before the November elections. And we said, how crazy would it be? Because Georgia had this very unusual dynamic of having two U.S. Senate seats on the same ballot. How crazy would it be if, you know, the Senate came down to 4850 and then it was up to Georgia to break the tie? And then what if Joe Biden won and then it would be Kamala Harris who would break the tie? Everything could come down to Georgia. And we all sort of dismissed it. We're like, ah, that's hilarious. That would never happen. And then lo and behold, the day after the 2020 elections, it all came down to Georgia. We had these two Senate races, uh, two Democrats uh, never elected to office before uh, running against these two incumbent senators with Kelly Loeffler, a brand new senator as well for the Republicans. And um, I don't think we ever predicted that it could have turned out the way that it did. But then for not only for it to have these huge implications for the nation and the U.S. Senate, but also for Georgia to flip these two Senate seats at the same time after nearly 20 years of just total dominance of Republicans here in the state, I'm not sure we'll ever see anything like it again. Kevin? Greg, I've got to believe that some people listening are thinking the same thing I am. 
that runoff was this year. It seems so long ago. So much has happened since then. And wait a minute, Warnock's running again, right? So it might be worthwhile take, to take a moment right to you and explain why if Warnock just won this year, we're talking about another election already. Yeah, Warnock's so lucky because he gets to do it all again. Um, his third campaign in two years time, essentially, because, you know, um, because Senator Isaacson decided to step down before his term was over because he, you know, wasn't doing so well. And we know he passed just recently. But in 2019, because Senator Isaacson left his seat and left it with several years left, Kelly Leffler was appointed to fulfill a little bit of his term, but then there was special election to fulfill the remainder of his term, which Warnock won. And now he's running for a full six year term. So if he wins, he doesn't have to run again for six years, but first he has to get through his third campaign in two years time. And Tia, I wanna stay with you because it was those democratic victories that allowed such a transformation in Washington to be pushing these proposals that we would not be talking about with a Republican-controlled Senate. We're talking about uh, the scope of the coronavirus relief package, the $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package. We're, we're talking about the bipartisan infrastructure plan that might have looked very differently if Republicans controlled the, the Senate. And of course, we're talking about the, the still stalled, but maybe eventually in some form or fashion we'll move forward, build back better plan that we, we wouldn't be even talking about if, if Mitch McConnell was the Senate majority leader. That's right. And it's you cannot overstate the impact of what Warnock and Ossoff's victory means for the Biden administration. And there have even been times where Democratic leader Chuck Schumer has on the Senate floor gone up, gone up to Ossoff and Warnock and said, thank you for being here because we couldn't have got this done without you. And just about any time there's major legislation that passes, Usually Democrats are doing it with very little or no Republican support. And that's only possible because they control the House, the Senate and the White House. And again, that's only possible because Warnock and Ossoff won those runoffs. And it it has, as you mentioned, Greg, expanded what Democrats are able to do. That final um, coronavirus relief bill, which is the American Rescue Plan, it would have been much smaller or might not have been any additional coronavirus relief passed. Then you had infrastructure. As we know, several presidents had tried to get infrastructure legislation passed and they were unable to do that. And so that that democratic control of the process helped them push through infrastructure, although it was bipartisan. And then now we have Build Back Better, which is this latest bill that Democrats are planning to do, also known as human infrastructure, also known as the social spending and climate change bill that President Biden wants to do. And once again, it this this bill in particular probably would be nothing non-existent if Ossoff and Warnock would not have won. I don't think President Biden would have even tried it. Yeah, well, we woke January 6th thinking the big story would be those Democratic victories and those runoffs, and certainly it had been the dominant news story around the nation for the nine weeks of the runoffs. But unfortunately, 2021 will also be remembered for something else that happened on January 6th. This is now effectively a riot. 
1349 hours declaring it a riot. It's still hard to hear that audio, um, even almost a year later, but, but the riots at the Capitol would foreshadow just how strongly Donald Trump would still control the GOP and over, uh, his loyalists. Uh, Tia, you were in the U.S. Capitol at that, at that moment doing those, doing those riots, reporting on the vote that, would, that was to take place later on that day. Even a year later, it, memories of those riots hold strong in our heads as, as, as an attack on democracy. Yeah, it's very difficult. Even for me, I'm trying to wrestle personally with the emotions that come up for me as someone who not just covered it, but experienced it. Um, And the things that I witnessed and went through that day, you know, it's tough. And it's interesting, the narrative that particularly those Trump loyalists, Trump allies, are starting to write about that day that's not rooted in what actually happened. Um, even a year later, you have members of Congress, you have Republicans who won't say that they believe Joe Biden is the rightful winner of the election. And you have people like Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene who are now trying to paint the people who breached the Capitol as you know political prisoners. And And I think, I hope that people who are listening today, people who are thinking about what January 6th means, don't forget that this was a violent attack, not just on our democracy as an ideal, but a violent attack physically on our law enforcement. And that the National Guard had to be activated to clear out the Capitol from people who had weapons and had broken things and defaced property. Um, And that's the reality of what happened that day. And at the root of it was the big lie about who was the rightful winner of the election. So it's serious. And it does feel at times that the seriousness is being downplayed by people who don't want to confront the the root cause of that day. But as someone who was there, I can tell you that day was serious. And Kevin, not much of, could have could have knocked the runoff victories off the off the top of the front page, but you know the insurrection was something that could. Right, you know, and I want to emphasize something here too. Uh, Tia Tia mentioned that you know she was literally in the chamber, house chamber when when this stuff was going on, and we of course back here in Atlanta, we were worried. We wanted to make sure she was okay. Unfortunately, we were able to hear from her and and t- get a text from her and make sure that she was okay, but we're also extremely proud of her. I mean, she was there as an important witness to history. So we know firsthand from her, no, it wasn't a group of tourists who got out of hand. This was actually a very serious and disturbing event and one of the low points in our, in our country's history. And as, as big a story, it has shaped the political uh, picture in our country and in our state and we'll continue to do so uh, for the foreseeable future. Wouldn't you say, Patricia? I mean, these campaigns we're looking at next year, candidates are on one side or the other when it comes to the insurrection. 
I think that's exactly right. They are on one side or the other when it comes to the insurrection, and they're on one side or the other, particularly for Republicans, as when it comes to the 2020 elections. And of course, the, it's all the same question. Was Donald Trump the rightful winner of that election? And was it the crime of the century, as he now calls it? Um, of course, that's not accurate. We have our reporting um, that goes back throughout the entire year of every single count, recount, court challenge, every single one dismissed by federal judges appointed by both Democrats and Republicans. There's just no evidence to back up all of these accusations, and that's because it just didn't happen. But that has really now become, you know, fast forward a year into these primary elections, and that's become the question, the litmus test in the Republican primaries. Um, and you only have to look at the Republican primary for governor between Governor Brian Kemp and David Perdue. The only policy difference between those two gentlemen is, was the election stolen? Uh, was Donald Trump the rightful winner? Um, and because Governor Brian Kemp stood up for the, that election, formalized the certification of those results as the law required, that is the only reason he's being primaried um, by Donald Trump uh, in the in the in the uh, uh, embodiment of uh, David Perdue. He's the one who's who's uh, been drafted to do it, and so it's been just so remarkable to me that when I watch January sixth, you know, my two the two visuals I had were. Uh, these images of uh, men and women just physically assaulting the Capitol after they had been told to go there by Donald Trump and had marched up from a Donald Trump rally where, he, where they were chanting, stop the steal. And inside the U.S. Capitol was the certification of those votes, uh, including Georgia's. Um, and uh, my other visual was of Tia reporting, literally reporting live from inside the House chamber and then from inside an undisclosed location. And we, we were sending her text messages, are you okay? And Tia was reporting live um, from and showing us her gas mask, showing us what the other people in the room were doing, um, showing us as she was being moved from place to place by Capitol Police. And so for Tia to have been there and had really the for, the forethought and um, the capability and just the just the street smarts, frankly, to do that to me gave people a window into exactly what it was like to be there and exactly what it meant. And that is really, to me, the first draft of that history from somebody who lived it. Um, and it's just a moment I will never forget. And I did text Tia, are you okay? And she really held her wits about her. But it's just something that that I will never forget as somebody who worked in that Capitol for so long. To me, it was just a heartbreaking sight and is something that I think our reporting will continue uh, to bear out. Hey, Greg, um, let's go back to the David Perdue thing. I mean, you've been tracking that, you know, because you cover Governor Kemp, and so you've been on this. He's completely revisiting a bunch of the lawsuits and the accusations, right? I mean, can that really work? I mean, why don't you run through that? Because I find it, like, confusing, and, and, and it appears to be going over the same ground that has already been taken care of, right? Yeah. And, and that goes back to what, what Tia mentioned, which is the big lie. We're at the dawn of 2022 and the big lie from 2020 is still pervading every Georgia Republican campaign. Um, and even if even even those who lost out on Donald Trump's endorsement, and even those who aren't running as, you know, ardent pro-Trump fans, either they are being sidelined, they're relegated, they're weakened, they're politically damaged, or they're they're revisiting these same lies. 
these these same election conspiracy theories. And you know, now that you mention it, yeah, one of our other major stories of the year is Brian Kemp facing this challenge from David Perdue with the backing and the egging on of Donald Trump. The winner will try to beat Stacey Abrams, who has raised her profile tremendously since losing to Brian Kemp four years ago. And it's David Perdue who is opening this campaign with the same falsehoods that we've talked about endlessly, those same lies that fueled the January 6th insurrection. In the first three or four days of his campaign alone, he signs on to a Fulton County lawsuit, to a lawsuit um, bringing up all sorts of baseless conspiracy theories involving absentee ballots in Georgia's biggest Democratic county. Um, He says that he would have called a special session to investigate uh, the election results, even though there's no evidence of any any sort of, of widespread fraud in the 2020 vote. And he also says he wouldn't have certified the results, even though a governor is bound by law uh, to do so. Uh, so my question to Tia is, this big lie is painting everything that Republicans do. But the question is, can Democrats sort of capitalize on the rift that's going to be one of the questions we'll be watching in 2022. Can they make the most of this GOP division? I think it depends a lot on the candidate. For example, in Virginia's governor's race, we saw that Glenn Youngkin didn't completely turn his back on President Trump, but he focused on other issues that allowed him to avoid talking too much about President Trump. And that was a winning formula in that race. Now, that'll be harder to do in Georgia, where voting rights in and of itself is something, particularly because there are more Black voters in Georgia. So, And we know that Black voters are much more invested in making voting rights something that is protected. And Black voters are more likely to vote Democratic. So it's it's going to be harder to run away from Trump in Georgia. But I think You'll see, particularly among the Republican candidates, people like Governor Kemp, who doesn't want to talk about President Trump. He doesn't want to talk about the big lie because in a primary, that actually brings him down because he didn't support it. Um, And so I think that a lot will depend on the candidates. And yes, Democrats are going to try to remind voters that, hey, these are candidates who you know, in a lot of ways have worked to make voting harder and have questioned the legitimacy of the election, mainly because their candidate didn't win. Um, But that'll be a harder, that'll be a harder point to make if Governor Kemp is the nominee. Um, But in the primary, I can see, again, Governor Kemp, and even to to a degree, I think, former Senator Perdue, yes, he wants to be that Trump candidate. And yes, the big lie is what he's tying himself to. But I also wonder if he's going to try to do that in a way that doesn't alienate Trump, but also doesn't tie himself so closely to Trump that he can't shake him later in the general election. So it's it's a delicate dance for the Republicans, for sure. It's a tightrope. And in the meantime, Patricia, I mean, far beyond election, debates, election law, the the Kemp versus Purdue battle is going to shape pretty much every other major policy debate that's going to come up in, in the legislative session and, 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 and in the public arena. I mean, you're talking about um, guns, issues of race and gender, 
banning obscenities in books, um, the debate over the referendum for the city of Buckhead, all these are going to be shaped by the fact that Governor Kemp now not only has to look to his left and, and worry about Stacey Abrams and and the enormous, you know, game-changing campaign that will be in, no, in next November. But first, he's got to survive a brutal Republican primary fight against one of the best-known and most iconic names in state Republican politics today. Yes, that's 100% true. And um, if listeners are wondering, well, how would a governor's primary affect the legislative session? Uh, you have to understand that uh, Governor Kemp really cannot let David Perdue get to his right on any more issues. He's already got, David Perdue has already got so much support from Trump Republicans. Uh, Governor Kemp can't afford to lose any more support. They can't have some standoff over who is more conservative on guns or who is more conservative on election integrity, as they call it. Um, they He simply can't let David Perdue draw a line and have him not be on the same side of that line in a lot of cases, then you have to look down to the state legislators who are going to be voting on those measures. If they know that the governor is going to be there anyway, uh, they also are not going to know exactly who their primary opponents are until qualifying in March. Uh, these state uh, senators, state representatives, Republicans do not want a Republican primary from the right, and they do not want to be compared to either David Perdue or Governor Kemp and be seen as more liberal or more vulnerable to a primary um, from another Republican. And so that's what's in their minds. They're evaluating these items as they come down the pike, evaluating them, of course, on the merits, but then you cannot take the politics out of it in an election year. And then um, driving that train or uh, conducting that train or just riding along on the train, we're not sure, will be the Republican leaders. Um, Speaker David Ralston has always been known as a pragmatist. He has always known where his votes are. And he also knows where the voters are typically for his members. And so he'll be, I think, calibrating very carefully exactly which issues to bring up, exactly which, which issues to sort of leave dangling out as a message issue, and uh, what what is it going to do to affect his numbers uh, once the election is over? I'd like to get your take, though. Um, well, I'll start with you, Greg, but Greg, Patricia, and Tia. Uh, as you talk about the, this Republican gubernatorial primary affecting the legislature, and you, you ticked off a few issues, Greg, so let's pick one. The movement to, for Buckhead to create a separate city. Talk about that, right? So the idea is that that has become a bit well, not a bit, I guess a strong conservative cause, right? And even though uh, there are the new ma elected mayor in Atlanta doesn't like the idea, and generally speaking, uh, the Democrats don't like the idea, in this effort between Purdue and Kemp to see who can prove themselves a stronger conservative, why does the Buckhead thing come up? So David Purdue, upon entering the race, one of his first policy stances was to clearly say that he supports the referendum for Buckhead. This has become a wedge issue immediately because Governor Kemp has not said either way whether he supports it or will oppose it. And it's been really fascinating to see this become a Republican statewide initiative, right? Um, every single state lawmaker who represents the city of Atlanta opposes this, and they're all Democrats, and they all oppose this, this measure. Uh, but Republicans who often trumpet local control from far outside of Atlanta are backing this idea. Um, they, they see it part and parcel of Atlanta's liberal ways. It's, it's a sort of going back to the city-state fights that Georgia had tended to avoid 
throughout Nathan Deal and Kasim Reed's stewardship of the city and the state. Um, now, you know, after Kemp and Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms fought for most of the last two or three years, um, there is this return of animosity between city and state. And when I saw Senate candidate Gary Black hold a press conference at a Buckhead shopping center where a, a grievous crime had just taken place, bringing up this issue, I knew that this was going to be really much more than a parochial issue, much more than a than a you know city debate. This is going to be a statewide issue next year unless unless Republican leaders like like Speaker Ralston end up intervening and saying, okay, let's 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 hold off on this debate because otherwise we've got David Purdue on it. If it gets to Governor Kemp's desk, it'll be really hard for him not to sign this measure. And it'll be really hard for Republicans down the road to say they believe in local control if uh, if if Republicans from outside that jurisdiction are weighing in on what, the fate of the city of Atlanta. And that's why I think particularly this Buckhead issue, we know it's not about local control. We know it's not about, you know, helping residents of Atlanta. Well, I'll say we know it's not just about local control. It's not just about residents um, of Atlanta being able to decide their fate. It's also unfortunately become a, a subtle way of saying, we don't want those people in my city, or I don't want my tax money going to those people. And it's a racial thing as well. We can't, we can't deny the fact that except for certain pockets, Atlanta is a very black city and Buckhead is among the whitest parts of Atlanta. And so in championing Buckhead becoming its own city, you're also championing a bunch of white people separating from their predominantly black city. And unfortunately, that's a way for conservative lawmakers to, again, subtly a very subtle way kind of say, hey, I get you. I'm going to help you not be in a city with those people without having to be so overt about race. But it's there. This is very much a, a, a battle over race and class and wealth as well. Um, Patricia, in any other legislative session, too, this would be like the marquee story. Um, this would be, you know, the, the religious liberty issue of, of the session. But, you know, looking at this upcoming session, Buckhead might be, it'll be a huge story, but it might be one of five enormous stories because we already have a growing battle over gun rights with David Perdue saying he, he, he supports what they call constitutional carry, which is a massive expansion of, of, of who can carry guns and, and where you can carry them. There'll be issues about critical race theory and debates over and legislation that involves uh, abortion and... Uh, uh, banning certain books from school libraries, um, educational policy divides, all these things that, you know, would have gotten sort of headline coverage will be thrown into the mix this this coming session when I think we're going to have a, a severe, a, a major return to culture wars in Georgia. 
Well, it sure feels like it. And I think one reason that we anticipate that also is because if you look at who is running statewide, a number of state senators are running statewide. Um, there are uh, two state senators, Burt Jones and Butch Miller, both on uh, both running for lieutenant governor. We know that they're going to be duking it out. They're going to be running to the right to see how far they can get over there. Uh, both of them have um, quite a bit of clout in the chamber, particularly Butch Miller, who's the Senate, who's Senate president pro tem um, and has a good bit of influence about which bills come to the floor. And he is one of the uh, members, uh, was the first member to say that he will be introducing a Texas-style six-week abortion ban. That alone would be enough to tie up an entire chamber for an entire session. But then we also know there will be follow-up legislation to the election law that was passed last year. We've already heard Republicans say, you know, we may need to come in and do a little bit more on that. We may need to do X, Y, and Z. That alone would be another thing to fill an entire chamber for an entire session. And it does feel like, uh, particularly after the Virginia election where uh, Virginia Republicans had a lot of success on issues like education and critical race theory, uh, they felt like they were able to power through a statewide uh, victory on cultural issues like that. I think that that gives legislatures all over the country, but especially Georgia, a green light to say, maybe that could work for us as well. I have to jump in here, Greg, too, because uh, Patricia is making the case for something that uh, you all know I believe in, which is our polling. We, I always try to make sure we have the money to do as much polling as we can, and this is why. Because what ends up happening is the politicians jump on, you know, pick your terminology, wedge issues, red meat issues, whatever the things they really want to make important uh because it, they believe it gets them votes or support or helps helps them raise money. Meanwhile, if you poll, you find out what do average citizens care about? They care about the economy. They care about jobs. They care about education. They care about Georgia being a better place to live. They don't really invest in or want people spending all of their time turning the legislative session into a partisan circus. You're exactly right. And another issue that comes up over and over again is health care. Right. Um, we saw with polling in the Atlanta mayor's race as well. Yes, crime was up there, but also affordable housing um, and, and economic equality. Um, and so those were issues that helped shape the race for mayor. And we'll do the same in 2022 as we watch the races for U.S. Senate and governor. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song. A celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-Hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. One of the many benefits you get as a subscriber to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is your daily jolt. That is our political newsletter we put together 
every morning and, and really every night. Everyone on the podcast, except for Kevin, uh, puts it together. Tia and Patricia, jump in and tell our listeners you know, the, the work it takes to, to craft the jolt for them every morning. Well, I can tell you it requires my um, iPhone to start ringing at me at 3.15 in the morning. <laughs> so I like to be downstairs by 3.30 and then make my coffee, sit down, and then I get to work on the jolt. But I never start from a clean page, which is the beauty of the jolt. It is a true team effort. And so I know that the night before, Greg and Tia have put in their own items for the jolt. So Tia will load it up with any like scoops and tidbits that she has from up in Washington. Greg will load it up with anything that he has gotten texted from a source or a story that he's been looking at. And a, the perfect jolt lead is something that is not enough for a full-blown story, but it's important enough for our readers to know about that morning. And so then I will see what they have already reported on. I see what has happened between usually 11 o'clock at night and then I mean, it's only a few hours, but so what's happened on, you know, this uh, cable newscast? Have we had any of our Georgia delegation making news? I'll have my own items uh, that I put in there and um, frequently it'll be an update if we're in session, it'll be legislative session related. Um, during the campaigns, it's tons of things that we're getting from campaigns. It's ads, it's money, it's disclosures, it's scoop and tidbits. Our readers even give us some really cool tips. So it's just a wonderful, um, a wonderful product. And uh, I'm not sure that anybody else produces anything quite like it. I try and get it up by seven in the morning, but if my kids wake up too soon, then I'm making pancakes and then I'll get it up by about 7.30 in the morning. And Tia, the beauty of the jolt is it's nimble, right? I mean, yeah, you were at the home on, on the morning of this podcast and overnight, the news that Herschel Walker's financial disclosure broke. And so really quickly put together, here are the main things, here are the main elements of you know, what was a big question out there in Georgia politics was how much is Herschel Walker worth and where is it, where are his investments? And we found that out pretty quickly. Yeah. And, and then even over, you know, late last night is when we found out the Supreme Court would be hearing about Georgia's challenge of vaccine mandates. So this morning, all three of us were like pitching in at the last minute. And guys, if you guys are jolt readers and the days that the jolt comes out a little bit later than normal, those are the days I'm in charge of the jolt and not Patricia because I can't wake up as early as her. I try. Um, but yeah. And the, the other thing is it's the three of us, of course, are the main jolt writers every day. Um, but we get feeds from our colleagues, you know, Mark Nisi, Maya Prabhu, J.D. Capilouto, Wilborn Nobles, Mark Nisi, and so many others. And um, we're always reading, of course, our AJC colleagues. And if we think it's something that Jolt readers might want to read about, we'll put it in the Jolt. Even other papers, the Savannah Morning News and the Columbus um, paper and the Rome newspaper, we're always looking for like important news about Georgia politics, no matter the source. And the, that's the great thing about the jolt is like each morning it's a one-stop shop. That's what we hope it is. That's what we um, aim for it to be. I have to chime in here, Greg, because every now and then I do come up with something that I'll send Patricia and it's quite a thrill when it makes the <laughs> jolt. Her standards are high, so I don't get it in very often. I keep hoping to get invited over for pancakes in the morning too, but I haven't had any luck with that either. 
Kevin, I was just about to invite you to send items in, but I had no idea you were already sending oh, yes. Patricia items in without Luke. I Ellison. protect Jeez. my sources, people. I protect my sources. Um, Greg, the other thing that I love about the Jolt is that it really starts the conversation in the state. And sometimes even at the state capitol, we will have our sources responding back to us about something we've written and posted 15 minutes before. We will start to hear from people in reaction to that. We've even seen multiple investigations started from, uh, from items that we've put in the jolt. It's also sort of exclusive jolt content. It doesn't often show up in the print paper unless it's more developed for for a fuller story. So it's a really um, great product. Well, we just mentioned how Herschel Walker led the jolt on the day of this taping. He is also one of the major stories of 2021, obviously. Um, The very mention of his name early on in the year by Donald Trump pretty much froze the field for U.S. Senate. And in late August, Trump finally got his man to enter the Senate race. People always ask me uh, what qualifies me to run for this office. And I said, well, you're right. I'm an American. And I said, what qualify a reverend to run for this office? What qualify a farmer to run for it? What qualifies a businessman to run for it? Kevin, we've got two marquee races in Georgia. We already talked about the governor's race, but we also have a U.S. Senate race that could determine control of the chamber next year. I mean, it's it's we have an abundance of, of stories to cover. Yeah, it's amazing to be in Georgia and watch this go on. I mean, we knew that the state was going to change. We knew that the politics was going to be affected, but it just seems like ground rush. Every time we have something going on, some kind of race, it's 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 a national issue. It's got interest across the country, and it's a great time to be a journalist in Georgia. I'll tell you that. Uh, Tia, um, Senator Warnock, has also become one of the most prominent Democrats in the Senate. He's one of the most fascinating figures to cover. Um, He was a political newcomer when he ran for the U.S. Senate when he announced about a year ago now, um, but instantly became sort of the Democratic favorite. He had Stacey Abrams backing. He had national support. And he is not running as some sort of moderate either in his re-election bid. He is running as a champion of voting rights, as someone who is, is sticking to a very liberal agenda. And it'll be, it'll be challenging and interesting to see him try to combat the national climate and Republican attacks that will paint him as too radical for Georgia. Yeah. And we've, of course, been writing about that ever since his previous um, campaign where, you know, Kelly Leffler would call him radical liberal Raphael Warnock every time she spoke about him. There was even a debate where she used that, you know, repeatedly just in a single debate. Radical, 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 liberal Raphael Warnock. And, you know, that time it didn't work. Again, it's going to be a little bit different as every election is. But you're right that Warnock has not tried to portray himself as some, you know, I'm I'm a moderate. I'm not like the rest. I'm I'm going to stand up to my fellow Democrats. That's not the type of candidate he was. That's not the type of senator he has been. And that's not the type of candidate we expect him to be going into 2022. Now, again, part of that is 
that's just not how black Democrats run, even for statewide office. It's hard to, you know, kind of paint yourself as some, you know, outlier in the Democratic Party when you run from a state where black people are the backbone of the Democratic Party. Um, And so, but yes, I think that Warnock has tried hard, both when he was a candidate and now as a senator, to portray himself as someone who cares about the people of Georgia and as a result is championing policies that he thinks will help the people of Georgia, whether that is Medicaid expansion, whether that's voting rights, whether that's things for farmers of color in particular. You know, so it's not so much about saying he's moderate. He's saying, I'm here to do what I think will help the people. Now, and- Patricia, Herschel Walker is the Republican frontrunner. But at the same time, he has not scared away opponents. I mean, he might have scared away some big name opponents, but Gary Black is in the race, Latham Sadler's in the race, Kelvin King's in the race. And there are some serious questions being raised about his past history and accusations of violence against women, his academic credentials, really what he stands for in, in politics. Because so far, he's sort of issued a lot of broad platitudes. And like we heard in the audio, he wants to run for the Constitution. But he, he's going to have to face the question, what does that actually mean? Yeah, I've been so interested to see how he has been running this race and it has been um, very tightly choreographed. We know that he has been on a bus tour and on what he calls a listening tour, and he's not doing a lot of talking. He's not giving traditional speeches. He's not done an interview, sit down interview with the AJC. Um, He's not getting tough questions in the way that you would expect somebody who was running for the Senate right now. He did do a sit down with Axios to address his uh, background of violence toward women, including his wife, um, address some of those questions, but I think also declined to answer some of the questions in that interview. And I think that, um, frankly, I think it's probably a smart way for him to be running this campaign right now because he's not been um, a high profile candidate in this way before. These are not issues that he's familiar with. This is not a state that he's lived in for 30 years. So I think he had he has, he has a lot to get up to speed on. Um, now that is not going to fly as the primary gets closer. It's certainly not going to be effective during a uh, general election, assuming he gets through this primary. And we saw exactly what happened when David Perdue did not debate John Ossoff. That was probably, I felt like that was Really, when John Ossoff started to run away with that race was when uh, when David Perdue was not answering tough questions and was not addressing problems that had been raised. And so Herschel Walker right now um, is uh, is doing, I think, what he needs to do as somebody who has a huge amount of personal wealth, as we've learned, uh, very high name ID and very high positives. And so I know that his team wants to keep it that way, wants to keep it that way, wants to keep these other candidates at single digits, which is where they are right now in the Republican primary. Um, If he just keeps this train going like this, he'll win. Uh, If he makes a huge mistake on the trail, that endangers that. Um, But this is not a long-term strategy that's going to be effective um, to actually win the race. Um, But I think for now, he's doing what he needs to do to um, to introduce himself to Republican voters and keep them happy. Patricia, I, I got to jump in here because you mentioned in passing and, and you sort of explained it, but just, just for listeners, I mean, we, we've tried to interview, you've tried to interview Herschel Walker. I have that right. Um, talk a little bit about the attempts we've made. And I don't know if it's better, which, which of the three of you are the best to talk about this. 
and, and, and just the realities of why candidates do that um, and what it really means for our coverage and how we handle things. Yeah, well, I know that Greg has put in the most requests. So, Greg, why don't you take that question? Yeah, um, I contact the Walker campaign daily, including you know the morning of this taping, before probably before daybreak. <laughs> um, often asking them for interviews. Um, I pointed out that just because another outlet um, covered something doesn't mean that we will not continue to cover it and, and, and ask critical questions of the candidate. We want to tell readers his stances on policies. We want to uh, illuminate his background and issues that will come up on the campaign trail because they're coming up no matter what. And as Patricia mentioned as well, you know, the candidates, and it might be smart strategy at this moment to try to run the above the fray campaign because he's got high name recognition. He's up in the internal polls over, over his Republican rivals, but already there are some really problematic signs for Herschel Walker's campaign in the general um, internal polls put out by the Republican Party, by the National Republican Senatorial Committee, shows him tied, essentially tied with 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 Raphael Warnock at this stage. So, you know, and you expect these internal polls to show a very glowing, sunny outlook. So if these polls are already showing a deadlocked race, that's not a good sign. And I've I've reminded um, Walker's campaign that and also reminded them of the risks of not talking to the 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 South's largest news outlet and, and, and the, the newspaper that will cover this race through thick and through thin. Um, so it's a, it's a definite campaign strategy for them so far, but it's also one that is full of risks in the future. Let's segue now to the last topic of our year-end review. We've talked about how the big lies influenced political campaigns, but now let's talk about how it's influenced Georgia policy, because the losses by Republicans in 2020 prompted state lawmakers to pass a sweeping rewrite of election law that included new obstacles to vote, new restrictions, and new deadlines for absentee ballots, and a provision that allows the state to take over local elections. This became national news, and in April, Major League Baseball made a historic announcement pulling the All-Star game from Metro Atlanta, and that sent Governor Brian Kemp into orbit. In the middle of a pandemic, Major League Baseball put the wishes of Stacey Abrams and Joe Biden ahead of the economic well-being of hardworking Georgians who were counting on the All-Star game for a paycheck. Patricia, this was one of our most read stories of, of 2021, the fallout over the Georgia election law and the back and forth over what it actually meant between Democrats and Republicans. Corporations got involved. Delta and Coca-Cola took a stand that so infuriated Republican lawmakers that I even saw Speaker David Ralston holding up Pepsi, something unimaginable once under the gold dome. Yes. And you really have to go back, though, to where this all came from. And when we started to hear about the scope of the changes that Republican lawmakers were proposing to an election um, that on November went very, very smoothly, particularly if you consider that this was at the tail of a pan- tail end of a pandemic, we did not see those long lines like we had seen earlier um, in previous elections. We did not get flooded by complaints. We did not have um, just a rash of of um, accusations. It just was a, with the, with a few exceptions, we didn't hear a lot of complaints until the results came in. And once Donald Trump started saying and questioning the results of the Georgia election immediately, um, then we started to understand that Republican lawmakers were going to go in and make some really tangible changes to Georgia law when it comes to elections over nothing more than accusations from a candidate who had lost. 
And so um, when this legislative session started and we started hearing uh, that there was talk at the time of ending Sunday voting, of ending uh, uh, no excuse absentee voting entirely, um, we I asked a very simple question. I said, well, what, what problem are you trying to solve here? I did not get an answer. There was no answer. Uh, I The answers I got were, well, I wouldn't say it's a problem we're trying to solve. I would say that, you know, it's a feeling. It's a feeling that that voters, some voters feel like this, this uh, isn't fair, that this isn't secure. And so we have real election law changed for the way people feel about what just happened. And so that to me is why it led to such enormous backlash and controversy because many people, especially outside of Georgia, understood that. If you were here and sort of in the entire stew of it, it all just felt like it was getting um, sort of lost in um, in a very heated emotion, very charged rhetoric. But then I think people, especially from outside, said, this is not normal. This is, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And so um, especially to see that corporate backlash, which is very unusual here in the state, mm-hmm. very unusual to have Delta and Coke come out against Republican lawmakers, totally unprecedented. Um, And then you have to sort of look at uh, the governor's reaction to that backlash. His own poll numbers went up. Uh, He had a great day the next day. It was the first time Republicans supported him unanimously on much of anything for the previous months compared compared to that day. And so that really kicked it off, I think, when we saw that this was going to be a situation that um, that Republicans would, would return to again and again. And Tia, that's such an important point because Governor Kemp used this to shore up his standing, which leads you to believe that there could be even more election changes coming. You've already seen Republican candidates for lieutenant governor, Butch Miller. He proposed banning absentee ballot drop boxes, even though there's no evidence of any sort of uh, malfeasance or, or fraud associated with those. So this is going to continue to be an issue that, that that Republicans use to energize their base. Right. And that's one of the reasons why the corporate backlash was so severe was because there was, I guess, the hope, the intent that, you know, if there was enough pressure on Georgia that made it you know, made other states think twice about doing the same thing. Because, you know, if you saw that by making it harder to vote based on, again, Patricia mentioned the feeling. Remember that feeling was um, among Trump supporters, not among the electorate at large, but among Trump supporters who did not want, basically because Trump was telling his supporters the election was stolen they started to believe him and Trump and his supporters would say there's mismanagement, there's fraud. And then his supporters started to believe him. So then we've got these sweeping changes. And again, I think Republicans are have who championed the bill said, well, these are changes to make it more secure, but the mechanics of the changes are substantial, you know, the, as we've already mentioned. And so the goal from those who opposed the bill was not just to give Georgia a slap on the wrist, and that's what the Major League Baseball did by moving the game, but also to say, please, other states, look what we're doing to Georgia. Don't try it. Now, that really hasn't worked because we've seen lots of other states pass similar um, laws that restrict voting rights, but that was part of the intent. Greg, um, I, you know, not, 
Let me try that again. Uh, Greg, I, I think all of you probably had the same experience I did where you were trying to explain what was going on to your friends who don't live in Georgia, right? And I think nothing captured that better than the ballot box issue, right? Because there were lots of people who voted absentee and lots of people, including me, who dropped their ballot in a ballot box. On one side, you had Republicans saying, well, they, they were never in the law and they were a measure taken by the Secretary of State that he perhaps shouldn't or had no right to do. So this law does now make ballot boxes part of Georgia's election laws. But on the other side, you had the Democrats saying, well, wait a minute. Yes, you're doing that, but we end up with many, many, many fewer boxes for people to drop off with much less convenience. And it, it's a classic example, depending on how you want to frame it, how you want to explain it. It's either better, worse, more restrictive, less restrictive. And to me, nothing captured the debate, the divisiveness, the, the different perspectives than better than the ballot box issue. Yeah. I mean, Republicans could say, now we're regulating it. Now we're allowing it specifically in Georgia law for the first time. And Democrats can say, hey, but we already allowed it. And now you're curtailing the use. And you could say the same thing about early voting um, because the law, uh, the law specifies now certain early voting times that in rural counties will actually expand early voting. But in more populous and slash democratic leaning counties, it could roll back. It will roll back early voting hours for some of those counties. Um, same thing with mobile voting um, that Fulton County used to great success in 2020's election that helped drive out turnout. Um, same things with another a number of other sort of voting experiments that we saw uh, work and, and some might not have worked. Um, but we're going to see massive changes. And I think the biggest change will, will end up well, there's two huge changes we'll be in. We'll end up writing about for a long time to come. One is the absentee ballot voter ID requirements that will have a significant impact. Um, and Republicans will rightly point to Democrats who said that they supported those provisions in the past. Um, but it will it it does serve as a new obstacle to voting for people who who voted by absentee ballot in, in previous elections. And the second major change is one we touched on before, which is the provision that allows the Republican-controlled legislature to essentially um, oversee, to take over, to take control of local election boards after a lengthy process that is really uncharted territory in Georgia politics. And we're already seeing that process beginning in Fulton County right now. So um, this is a significant part of the bill. A lot of attention was cast on the the parts of the measure that block people from giving out food and, and water to people waiting in line. And that those are important. But I think the most important part is the one that is, I think it's murkiest too, because we're just not sure how, how that process is going to play out right now. It's going to be hard to know exactly um, what it does to the election. Does it increase voter confidence in the next election or does it undermine voter confidence in the next election? And uh, that's because a lot of these changes, um, we won't know if people uh, never did vote because they uh, couldn't find their driver's license number or they never had a driver's license number in the first place in order to vote. Uh, we're just not going to know those things. And so if it's another close election, um, I think we will 
have partisans on um, I don't on whichever side is not winning point back to this law and either say it was too much or not enough. And you just have to look at the last election, um, fewer than 12,000 votes separating the presidential ticket. And um, could this law cost Democrats 11,000 votes? Maybe, you know, if you have the exact same voter pool, but different voting laws, is it going to appreciably change the election in a way that matters? Um, That's going to be the question that both parties are trying to answer. And of course, Democrats are going to invest heavily in voter education. I've already spoken with Democratic strategists for the party who are spending enormous amounts of time uh, bringing um, both county officials up to speed on the details, the nuts and bolts of the law, and also voters up to speed on the nuts and bolts of the law, educating them about that Dropbox you dropped off at last time. That's not going to be there again this year. Oh, you want to do a Dropbox? It better be during business hours, just so that people don't wait until the last minute only to find that they can't cast their ballot for who they meant to do it for. And so this will continue to have ramifications, I think, for a long, long time. Well, Georgia is the premier battleground state in 2022 in the entire nation. And we're so fortunate to be covering politics at a time when there is too much news to cover. So if you're looking for something else to listen to this week, you can catch up on this feed with all sorts of other programs about Georgia politics, including our Inside City Hall podcast, with our City Hall reporters, J.D. Capilito and Will Nobles, breaking down what Mayor-elect Andre Dickens must do when he takes office in January. Plus, there's fresh content from Access Atlanta and our Falcons beat reporter, D. Orlando Ledbetter, on the Bowtie Chronicles. Kevin, Patricia, Tia, thank you so much for joining us. As always, listeners... Uh, 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 Wait, 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 wait. Before we go, we have a surprise segment here for the year-end version of the Political Georgia podcast. Uh, now, I've only been the uh, podcast manager here for a few months, and you've already heard the best of the Political Georgia podcast. Uh, what I'm going to be concerned with now is the worst of the Political Georgia podcast. Oh, is podcast this a blooper reel? Since I've been here. Yes, we have. Uh, Kevin, I'm going to assume this is the first time in the 150-year uh, history of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that we have a blooper reel. I but we do have. Uh, I got a bad feeling it might be the last. I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> so, so first, uh, we we have Greg tries to do a promo. So please take a listen to that. I think you'll really appreciate learning more about the former Republican lawmaker. Something like that. Whatever. Jay's laughing at me. Um, you can just delete that. Uh, take a nostalgia trip over at Access Atlanta. Meet the South Park writer. <laughs> We're stumbling to the finish here. Jeez. <laughs> Do some tongue twisters, Greg. So that, that was actually last week. So um, we, we also have uh, Patricia support. The late John Lewis, who might have said it better than most during Isaacson's retirement. You can you can redo that, Toss, if you want to make it a little more fluid. <clears throat> okay. Because um. <laughs> it stunk. It did okay. stunk. Okay. It did stunk. <laughs> Thank you, Patricia, for that one. We we also, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to turn it for this show. Um, we have a lot of children that have, that have made an appearance um, in this taping, and I've and I've also gotten a lot of guidance on parenting um, while uh, recording a podcast. But we, we've also had multiple appearances, and you've heard some of them um, by Charlie the Dog. Trees here in Georgia over the next decades. Hold on, there's my dog. Hey, Cheryl, can you get our our, our monster? <laughs> You mind? He's just sitting there staring at me barking. 
I don't know what his problem is. I didn't do anything to you. I gave you chicken. <laughs> I Thank love you. that we can edit this out. That's great. Yeah, I know. Jay's, Jay's used to this. <laughs> and this is why I'm used to this. You hear him? Crap. I, mean, I swear to God. Hold on. Want me to go get him? <laughs> Jesus. Sorry. Please, never does this. Charlie, you stop it. All right, so start back over with the... Uh... Oh, my God, Charlie. I can't do this with you right now. So that's it. That's um, unfortunately Sailor the dog uh, uh, did not did not make it into the. He's so uh, much better than Charlie the dog. You can see why this show raises my blood pressure sometimes when I have all these that, kids and dogs around. That being said, I went over to Patricia's house to help her with some microphone issues, and Sailor the dog uh, bowed up like you know I was an invader in the house. Uh, Sailor is about I don't know what ten inches big and just started going crazy barking. Now he's barking at me from twenty feet away like a tough guy, uh, and then. Then when I went in the house, he continued while standing behind, jumping behind Patricia's back and barking at me. He scared yeah, you, but, didn't he? It's scary. Uh, well, it's scary. Yeah, he, he's, uh, yeah, so that's one word for it. So, Kevin, is that okay? Do we have permission to continue the blooper reel in 2022, yes. Kevin? <laughs> well, I, you know, I... Uh, don't want that to overshadow the incredible work ethic and professionalism of these journalists. Uh, but it's good to know that um, you persist through all of that. I, I've always been impressed with your work. I know how hard it can be at times dealing with politicians, but I suppose if you can handle them, you can handle your dogs and kids and everything too. Jay, I'm just glad you brought Kevin on for the blooper reel. You know, if there's if there's anything to have the editor in chief of the paper listen to, it is the exclusive blooper reel of us yelling at our dogs. And, and Tia maintains kids. her very calm sis demeanor, zen like, <laughs> zen like atmosphere in her apartment. That's because I live alone. <laughs> I, I I hear you, Tia. Well, with that all said, enjoy the 2022 blooper reel in about a year from now. And listeners, it means so much to us to hear your feedback, to get your texts, to get your, your ratings and your reviews and your shares and your subscriptions. It, it means the world to us. And we're so happy to have Jay Black on to help revive this podcast this year. And we'll have plenty, plenty more to come in 2022. Listeners, I hope you had the merriest of Christmas, the happiest of holidays and the happiest of New Year's. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Oh,